can now call the meeting of the Human Resources Committee to order. Could we please have a roll call? Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Jensen? Here. And Trustee Lawrence has an excused absence. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, at this time, I will suggest or ask for um, support and a motion to to make a, a minor change to the agenda. What I would like to do would be to have for our um, after the consent item for I would like to um, have I'm looking at the wrong agenda sorry have um, public comment on each item we have three items to discuss and um, so I'd like to open it for public comment thank you prior to each presentation if there's no so moved could, could I make a friendly amendment? Sure. Would you like to have the um, staff present and then hear public comment and then we could have our discourse? Or did you want to have public comment right at the beginning? I, I think um, we have public comment at the beginning and then we hear from staff because staff's presentation is already prepared. So okay. um, cool. I think it would be it. Fair enough. And most public bodies, as you well know, might have public comment either at the beginning or the end. We, tend to have it at the end now, so. Yeah. Um, All right. So with, with no objection, we'll do that then. The next item here is the approval of the minutes for the January 10th meeting. And I had one minor change to the minutes, which was the time we started. It said four o'clock, and I'm pretty sure we started a little after five. But I've already shared that with, with our clerk. I move that we approve the minutes of the meeting. Second. Oh, with no objection, thank you. And then the next item is our report, a benefits update from Paul Peck. And if there's any speakers on this item, it looks like, you know, as a matter of fact, yeah. I don't believe we have any comments on this. So Paul. You excuse one moment. We're having a technical difficulty. A quicker difficulty. Yes. It's not working. So, um, it does working on it. So, I'm just going to give you an update from open enrollment for 2018. Um, we had no changes to any of the plans. So that was a good thing because I had at least three people out on maternity leave at that time. So it was good that we didn't have a lot to explain to everybody. Um, <coughs> our renewal rates for last year went very well. AHS had a 6.2 rate reduction. Um, our loss ratio on the AHS plans was running at 79%. We had six active large claims. Um, our stop loss came in with a 9.5% increase. We took that increase because we didn't want to switch carriers. <coughs> Switching carriers multiple times is a dangerous thing to do in stop loss. Kaiser, however, last year was with a 7.75% increase. We actually, if they could have done it based upon our utilization, it would have been around 22%. 
So 7.75 was a great increase. We had 15 large claims. I just actually had our utilization meeting with Kaiser yesterday. So from that 7.75 increase we had last year, we are currently running at what looks like a 3.9% decrease for the next coming year. So that's great. And our utilization and our large claims are down 22%. Our claims are down to five with them. So it's looking very good. That's not necessarily what the renewal will come in at because we still have four more months of data to, to come before we get the actual renewal from Kaiser. But it's looking much better than last year. Paula, Paula could I just ask you to explain for the trustees the, the net loss ratio? So that's clear what it actually refers to. And what that refers to is what we have projected our claims were going to be versus what our claims are in the AHS plan. So that ratio means that we're 20% under, at least 21% under what we projected we would have in claims. So the plan, the AHS plans have run from 69% to 79% since we started them. And last year, if you could compare with Kaiser, we were at 120% loss ratio. Okay, then that's why we had such a huge increase. This year with Kaiser, we're running at you know a much better loss ratio. So they look at what they projected, that's what we paid them in premium, versus what the actual claims are. Okay, we look at it because we're self-funded on what did we project claims were going to be and what the claims actually were. So that's how that works. Trustee DeBase, did you have a question? I did. So what does a 7.75% rate increase look like to the entire organization as far as the total cost? Um, I, mean, I know we some of that our employees pay. Exactly. Well, a percentage of it the employees pay. It was about, the issue would be is important when we get to the numbers of people we moved around mm -hmm. because actually we reduced the amount that we're paying Kaiser even though the amount went up. Because fewer people Because fewer people in the right. plan. Right. So that's, you know, when we get there, that's, so that. that's kind of the important issue there. The more people we can move out of the Kaiser plan because that's a set value we have to pay them versus having them in our self-funded plan, we're paying claims as they're incurred. Okay. So it saves us year over year it saves us a tremendous amount of money and right now the contribution for the hs plan is zero from the employees right. and it's 10 percent for right. the kaiser plan overall it averages 10 percent it yeah. goes from 10 percent up to 20 percent based upon um, number FTE. of hours and calculated fte that somebody works oh. okay so it's a it's a it's we negotiated that years ago when we started the plan is so. that unusual to to not have set rates for yes. individuals and families? Well, they are set. They're set annually. But it's unusual to have a range like we have. Um, it was part of when we first negotiated um, contributions to the Kaiser plan, because if you go back in history and look at what we did before, Kaiser was free. Um, everybody paid the difference between Kaiser and whatever plans we had. So as we progressed through and we were trying to get ready for our <coughs> own plan, we negotiated. Yeah, I know it's. You have the angle all the way. There, is that better? No, it's still better. All right. What, what happened was there was a history here of when we purchased our benefits from the county, 
what happened prior to our negotiation with the unions was, if you were in Kaiser, you paid nothing. If you were in any other plan, you paid the difference between the plan. And if you worked less than a full-time schedule, you paid a prorated amount based upon the number of hours that you worked. Down to if you didn't work a .5 schedule, you paid 100% of the cost. And that fluctuated pay period to pay period. That was the old way. So I said, this is, this is not good. People should have a set amount of money that they know they're going to pay per pay period no matter what hours they work. So when we did the negotiation, we ended up with this scale that goes from 10 to 20% based upon your calculated full-time equivalent. We do the annual look back. That then sets it for the whole year. So the employee pays the same amount monthly? Per pay period, right. Yeah, it, never, it never changes. So that makes sense for okay. so, so that was a major change that we made. And that, I mean, that's a long explanation for what it does. It took us a, a while to get there. I, I totally appreciate all that background. Um, but my original question was really, what was the impact to our overall no, expenses? I understand. The, the overall expenses are a reduction. Our expenses are above what we projected at the beginning of the budget year. Yet right. our, our number of employees is not necessarily. And so there's a, I'm wondering, it, it's a more, I mean, I it's, it's not also, and Delvecchio may want to weigh in on this, but there's a complexity to benefits are all based upon pay rate. Right, so if you look at total benefits, they include retirement in there. And so if the, if the rate of pay which, that we give to people is higher than we'd originally projected because of whatever formula we used, let's say it's just a, a straight average as opposed to a weighted blended average, then the cost of the retirement is higher, the cost of PTO is higher, that drives up the overall cost. I think it's more to do with that than anything that relates to the health care benefits. Yeah, it doesn't relate to health care benefits. Health care benefits, that's pretty much been a fixed cost. And they've, and they've actually come down because of the transition into the AHS plan, even though Kaiser went up, our overall costs are lower than we would have projected. Thank you. All right, all right. Okay. And that, that's good the, to know. That's the long answer to that one. No, that's a good question. That's good. Um, so during open enrollment, these are the things that we did. We did manage to everybody's home. We still, this year we did recorded tutorials that still live on the intranet so that people can go out and figure out how to do, they can look at a tutorial instead of us having to go out and be with them one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we did health fairs. We still did enrollment sessions throughout the month of November. And we still used Alex. And we have Alex, I think I've showed you a couple times, is um, a nice interactive tool that we can use and I would say about a quarter of our employees use Alex during open enrollment period, and almost 100% of our new employees use Alex when they're trying to make a decision. So that's that's a good, it's been a good investment for us. It was very inexpensive. So our plans for 2018, just to show you the numbers, um, Kaiser went from 35% down to 34%, so it wasn't a huge number. Freedom of choice went from 55 to 60. The share of savings was where the jump has, and those numbers don't add up, and I think it's a rounding up. <coughs> I think the share of the savings is six point something, mm -hmm. and the Kaiser's at 34 or 33 point something. Share the savings is when you opt out? You opt out. We pay you $250 a month not to take the plan. And I don't necessarily believe people leaving share the savings 
and going into freedom of choice is a bad thing. Because we're, we're, we have set $250 a month we have to pay them. If they go into freedom of choice and they're healthy and they're not using the plan and they're not having any claims, then we're, we're actually saving money in the long term. So uh, my question then is, will share the savings do, do um, does an employee have to demonstrate that they have yes. other coverage? Yes. Yes. They have to demonstrate that they have other coverage, and we have in all of our contracts that they only, if they have a, we have a married couple or domestic partnership, and they both work here, they get one coverage. So we're not paying for medical and giving them $250 a month. They get one medical coverage between the two. So, and that's a little bit of a trick every year to figure that out and to make sure that we've done it correctly. But we've gotten pretty good at, at tracking those people. Do you have a question? Any questions about? It's, I, I said before, and I think I said that last year, I think we're kind of at that spot where I don't expect a lot more people to move out of Kaiser. You know, we're at the place where I think those are people who have been in Kaiser for a long time, gone from 95% down to 35%. I think that's probably as far as we're going to get. Um, this is just a demonstration of the same information as far as what it looks like year over year to kind of show you how the movement has gone. And then I also did kind of an evaluation of who moved. So we had 69 employees who moved from Kaiser to Freedom of Choice. I had 37 employees who moved from Freedom of Choice back to Kaiser. 24 SANs who were in Freedom of Choice but then elected to waive this last year. And then 50 employees who waived last year who chose Freedom of Choice. 35 employees who waived last year who chose Kaiser. And then we continue to see that 80% of our new hires go into the Freedom of Choice plan. These, that distribution kind of is, is equally over whether it's employee, employee plus one, or employee plus family. So there's not, I mean, there's not any characteristic that, you know, jumps off the page and says they choose something different. Okay. Any questions about the medical? So dental, oh, excuse me, flex enrollment. We had a little dip. This is the first time since I've been here that our overall contribution to flex spending went down. It only went down by 68000 Our employees continue to save about 770000 a year in taxes. We, last year, this year, will save 196000 That continues to pay for the flex plans in place. We pay the flex administrator $95,000 a year for all of their administrative work, so that 196000 pays for that easily and justifies keeping those plans in place. Um, our employees love flex spending, continue to use it. I'm not real sure what the dip was about, but we had a little dip last year. First time in 10 years. Our dental plan enrollment um, kind of is just pretty steady. We have 15% of our people take the Delta Care USA, which is a Delta HMO. 56% are in the basic PPO plan. 29% this year took the buyout plan. We met with Delta Dental actually today for a utilization review, and all of these plans are running very well. So we're doing um, very nicely. The buyout plan was kind of leveled out when we first started the buyout plan. It was being utilized almost at 100%. 
and now it's down to about 70%. So that's a great improvement. What exactly does that mean, the buyout? The buyout plan means I have, we have the PPO plan offers employees $1,200 for each person that they enroll. If they enroll in the buyout plan, they get $2,000 for each person yeah. under the PPO and they get orthodontia coverage. Oh, okay. So the first four years we offered that plan, people went into it, used it to the max. And now that's kind now of what it is. Now the teeth are all done. No, now exactly. we'll spend the lifetime maximum. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I can attest to. Could, could I go back just a, sure. just a quick question? I believe we have, uh, for anyone who's concerned about mental illness, a separate EPA plan or what are those called? Right, EAP plan. Uh, EAP, sorry. Um, and is there additional coverage for mental health services in the health plan as well? In both health plans, there are extensive mental health services okay. and counseling. As a matter of fact, what my staff and I do is when somebody calls us and they have a real serious problem and they want to go to the EAP, mm -hmm. we try to encourage them to go through their health plan. Because the EAP is only three face-to-face -face visits. And I would prefer they begin that process with, them, with somebody that they can use long term mm -hmm. instead of three plans. If it is an emergency, we suggest they use the EAP and then see if we can get them crossed over. But it is, if it is something that is a huge problem, mm -hmm. then we would encourage them to go through their health plan first. I bring that up because I think, given what we've heard about the stress, the um, level of burnout, all of that in healthcare generally, not just our facility, yeah. I'm concerned for us to be sure people understand that that is part of sure. their plan. Um, is, is what you've just described, the call to your office, the you know request for assistance, is there any way that that's actually more generically shared and broadcast? Lot, lots of ways. Okay. Lots of ways. Thank you. Um, we're doing a lot of work through the wellness plan okay. with mental health. And actually, this week, we have, call, it's called the pause bus. It's called the pause bus. It is this blue bus that we have taken to John George Fairmont, and I believe San Leandro today. And it is all about taking 15 minutes, go outside, there's these little pods inside the bus, and you get a, a whole meditation, or you get a whole oh, meditation. meditation. Oh, yeah. It walks through my neighbor. I've seen that bus. It's like, a blue bus? Yeah. yeah. When I walk my way One woman who owns it, yeah, she started it. We just tried it out to see how it went. And she has actually got, this is really interesting, she's got a group of investors who want her to sell them Right to do that? Product right away. Mm -hmm. Very good, because it's <laughs> And our employees... Because there's someone to our block in Union City. <laughs> our employees, the, the feedback we've gotten so far is, when are you coming back? Hmm. Okay. When are you coming back? What are you going to do? Maybe we can... Actually... Maybe it's uh, Alameda Hospital during the retreat. Oh, good. That's what I was going to say. Wait, is he going to bring you over? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you would get the humor in that, Tracy. I apologize. <laughs> well, could, could we talk about that at a regular board meeting, just as an example of some of the things we're trying to do for so we, promoting wellness? That's just an example. Yeah. Gina has been working really hard. Gina Rappaport is my wellness manager. She's been working very hard on several committees about what can we do about stress relief. Okay. And what are the things we can put in place for stress relief? 
So there are a number of projects we're looking at. Some so simple as can we get, because um, we have on the Fairmont campus, we have a little workout area. We'd like to be able to find a spot to do that on every campus. Not a lot of equipment, but a couple pieces. That's just a place to go. Can we put a quiet spot on every campus where people can go and just decompress? And can we put things inside that room that will help? So those are some of the projects that she is working on. So it's not just one or two things. We're working on a ton of things. I just thought it was important to, to know one, one, this is great. I haven't heard about the pause bus myself. I'm, I'm thinking about Uberizing it and I'll do it in my own car and uh, try to charge some money for it. But um, uh, what I was going to say is to, to answer your question, because I think it's an important uh, uh, sort of asterisk on it, is a lot of uh, certainly the, the health uh, benefits and the health benefits and the health benefits is for employed staff and providers who actually get their benefits uh, through the organization as employees. Uh, but as you know, a, a fair amount of our providers are still contractors and so it's up to them as contractors uh, if they are part of a group or a organization for that organization to offer then those services via their plan in terms of getting them. Uh, some of the other wellness services, some, not all of them, are a little bit more agnostic, I believe, uh, whereas others are uh, also uh, um, um, specifically prescribed for employees as well. So there, there is a bit of a, a uh, difference in your, uh, the availability of some of these services based off of your status with your organization. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, it would be nice to hear more about that pause bus. I, I know that especially um, in some situations that we have here or at, at our other sites, it would be really valuable to have it on call. For <laughs> um, so anyway, there was the dental enrollment. Dental results, pretty much the same. I don't and, and the dental is not, there's no charge. Dental, dental is what? There, it's, it's, the employees contribute only if they take the buyout plan. Yeah. And otherwise, we pay 100% of the cost. Um, other benefits, VSP, this is the enrollment for 2018. It continues to hold pretty steady. Um, and VSP is paid 100% by employees. It's a voluntary plan. The rest, uh, the life insurance is also all voluntary. So those are the numbers of people who've enrolled in each one of those plans. Long-term disability, we pay the base, a 50% plan. Employees then can buy up into a 66 and two-thirds. So about half of our employees are buyed into that long-term disability plan, which I think is a really important benefit. And so are these marketed by the, by the um, insurers to the employees? How do, how do the employees find so out about the life insurance? And all of it is in what we call our big, which is our annual uh, manual that we do that mailer, and then we have the health fairs where, where the vendors do come. Um, these are the life insurance that we offer during opening enrollment, but we also have life insurance that we do in the spring, which is whole life. So these are all term life insurance policies that are on here that we do during open enrollment. And then in the spring, we have a whole life policy that we sell as well. So, And then the long-term disability is also during open enrollment. So critical illness this last year was one we added the year before, and we continue to have a large number of people enrolled in that. That's 100% employee paid. Um, it's if you have cancer, you have a heart issue, you have end-stage renal failure, those things are, and the 
employees choose whether they want a $15,000 policy or a $30,000 policy, they also can do it for their spouse or for their children. So it's similar to AFLAC, but, but I think a much richer product. And then you brought up the employee assistance plan. You continue to have that. And last year we added torchlight for children. This year we added torchlight for elder. And if you remember correctly, this is the plan where our employees who have children with disabilities can call. There's material. There's guidance. If they need to, they can get a one-on-one -on -one counselor. This year we added it for elder, and the feedback has been huge in that we've had employees that it was extremely helpful helping them get through several issues with the parent and whether it was medical related or financial related they really appreciated that and, and do, is this a plan that people that employees have to purchase no they do not no. we're right employee assistance and torchlight and access they're not purchasing anything the ahs funded we that. funded those access perks what we did is we paid for access to that and that's the one I showed you last year where employees had saved large amounts of money and they continue to do so. They're getting discounts of up to 50% on various different products or services. But the critical illness is a, a, a benefit that has to I have to pay for that. Right, right, right. And that's it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I'm going to get some water because I want um, Trustee Hernandez to return. We have actually three speakers on this item, so. On the dashboard? Yes. Oh, no. Yes. And um, I want all of the committee to be here as um, people speak. So if um, John Pearson, Pat Reynolds, and um, Vanessa Colbert can come up and get ready and decide who's going to speak first and I'm going to grab some water and um, Trustee Hernandez will be returning in a second. We're going to grab some food or some more food. I mean, why not, right? to our next item, which is the HR dashboard presentation. And first we'll hear from um, Pat Reynolds and John Pearson. Please introduce yourself as you come up. And Vanessa Colbert. Hello, my name is John Pearson. Uh, can you all hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a nurse in the ER here at Highland. And I'm also the chapter president for uh, SEOU 10 to 1 at AHS. Um, as you heard last time uh, we came to speak, um, 
where Lulu is extremely concerned because we see a pattern in probationary releases uh, where roughly two times, uh, you're two times as likely to be released on probation if you're black, your status is black. Um, we have been looking at the data that AHS provided and we're seeing a similar pattern with disciplines for non-probationary workers as well as terminations for non-probationary workers. This is a very serious problem. Um, workers losing their ability to provide for their families uh, obviously is something that shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, and uh, having a situation where it looks like that may be correlated with the color of somebody's skin, obviously that's, that's a pretty huge issue that needs to be taken care of. Um, we heard your promise to address the problem, but we're deeply concerned because we're not seeing acknowledgement from HR uh, or any, any kind of progress uh, on making the situation better. Um, we filed a grievance on February 23rd and we have yet to receive a response. So that's far beyond the MOU's grievance timeline um, and also it's a signal to us that uh, the executive team isn't taking this seriously. And basically what, what we're asking for is um, we really want we would like AHS to show us that it's committed to fixing racial bias by showing some measurable progress. Right? So we have some concrete data points showing what's going on. We'd like to see some measurable prog progress to see this disparity shrink as rapidly as possible. We gave some suggestions for ways that we could sit down together and start working on that in the remedy that we requested in our grievance, and we're still waiting for that response. Um, we appreciate the talk that you're going to hear in a little bit from Tony uh, or possibly somebody else from HR about diversity, uh, but we really need to see some concrete, measurable progress, not just promises of trainings, classes, PowerPoints, those sort of things. Um, we really would like to see this commitment displayed in a response to the grievance and, and sit, HR sitting down with the union and talking to work out this problem. Um, Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Have a good evening. Thank you, John. And also, um, Troy Nixon will be speaking on the side. Okay. So good afternoon. My name is Patricia Reynolds. I work in pre-anesthesia and orient. I live here 17 years. As a matter of fact, I was born in this hospital. I brought a young man with me this evening because, as John said, we are very concerned about the disparity that's going on with the African Americans here and how they let go just prior to termination, I mean prior to their um, probationary period. This young man is always there when we call him. He works in IT. They send him over to Fairmont the next thing you know, 11 days before his uh, business days. His, uh, he was terminated. Uh, we have doctors here that's willing to stand up for him and say what a good worker he is. He's a family man, sole provider, two children, one child with uh, brain cancer. I mean, he's a good worker. You know, so we say anything. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm from this community. Um, Your name, sir? Darnell Rasson. Yeah, uh, I'm actually from this community. I went to Edinburgh, I went to um, Cleveland Elementary. Uh, I moved here when I was 11 years old. Just that is a natural high for me, just to come to work and just to, just to work. And uh, I, um, I see the fact that we help people in, in my community. So I was a person who helped people who helped people in my community. So that was that was great and for me. And then so 
certain certain like the K building and the um, the K building and the ACT building, you can see my junior high school from here. So you know, there, there's, those are just little buzzes for me. You know, every day I would just I would just proactively walk through the ACT and find stuff broken and fix it. You know, so I don't know what if I should. Watson, just keep talking about my life. <laughs> like honestly, um, I care. I honestly care about this facility. And um, yes, I was pushed into a situation, but I don't think it was taken care of the way it should have been. And um, people know honestly. I'm, I'm happy. Those guys, like those two right there. No, I honestly love my job. I came to work every day, and I proactively look for stuff broken because you know this is this is my facility. This is my facility. I truly care. Truly care. And and this. Facility should be reflective of the community, and we see that it's vastly changing. Yes, it's a new day at Highland, but what type of day are we entering into? Thank you. Hello, my name is Vanessa Kobe, and I came in and addressed you guys back in February. Um, I spoke with you guys about uh, being sexually harassed by a supervisor. I spoke with you guys about going to the director of food nutrition, labor uh, relations, and getting no response. And in return, I was fired. I never called in. I was never late. I just can't understand the just of the situation. Like, I was told that it would be looked into, that it would be investigated. I also spoke to, I didn't even know it was John Hardy. He told me that he was going to look into it. He, it would be investigated. He called me back like maybe a couple of days before I came to address you guys and told me he was in agreement. But he also told me he'd never investigated it. He never went and spoke with none of my witnesses or anything of that nature. So I feel like this really needs to be looked into because I have kids, I have a family to take care of, and I never called him. I never did anything, and I came every time I was called in, and I don't understand why I was fired. And I feel like this really needs to be looked into because I was sexually harassed and I had witnesses, I brought them to the director of food nutrition and the head of HR, knowing that anything, and then they fired me in return. Like, I don't understand why they did it or what's going on, but you guys told me that you guys would look into it and I haven't got an answer from anybody. And I was wondering if you guys would just please look into it. My name is Troy Nixon. I'm a registered nurse at John George Psychiatric Pavilion. Um, I'm also a chief shop steward for John George and Fairmont Hospital, and I've been with AHS for 25 years now. And um, I'm really concerned about what I'm hearing um, in terms of the disproportionate amount of black people that are um, being released or fired um, prior to the probationary period. Um, as long as I've been here, um, things like this usually don't happen by accident. Um, it's not a coincidence. And we've gone through this wave of seeing people release who look like me before. Um, I believe I was just one of the lucky ones. And um, like John mentioned, I think that um, AHS need to take a stance. They need to um, be clear leaders and uh, put out the message that this kind of uh, action will not be turned um, Will, will not be tolerated um, because I think that it, 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 it makes us look bad. Um, it doesn't um, allow us to, in terms of staff, um, you know, members 
the, the staff members doesn't it, it doesn't reflect the people that we serve. Basically, is what I'm saying. So, um, and another thing, um, Houston is that just a week ago, you know, we were um, you know talking about the 15th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, and, and we knew we all knew what he stood for and what he talked about, and yet. Here we are today still talking about the things that he was killed over. And so um, I know it's uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, it doesn't feel right. Uh, you know, it takes courage for people to stand up and, uh, you know, decide to do the right thing. But I think it's time that we should do the right thing. Um, in closing, I would just read a quote from him, which is, we may have all come on different ships, but we are, but we are all in the same boat now. So, you know, so I hope, you know, people will decide to do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> and we have one more speaker. I think that would be Peter. That's fine. Um, my name is Peter I'm actually staff with SOU Timber One and uh, as some of the actual numbers. So in February, the union submitted an information request for the most recent EEOC demographic information, which was from 2016, uh, and the hires and separations within AHS since September of 2016. Um, I can share this data with you, but it's not in a format. It would look really confusing, so let me clean it up, and then I could feel free to share it with you. So the percentage of the workforce in different racial categories, it's a very diverse workforce. Um, overall, uh, we have a 13 um, we have a 13% Latino, uh, Latino, 22% white, about 27.7% African American, 1% Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, 28% Asian, uh, half a percent Native American, and then about 6.74 identifies with two or more races. Um, so that's pretty good and it kind of shows, reflects the diversity of the Bay Area. However, uh, since September 2016, there have been 94 probationary releases, and of that, 44% of the probationary releases have been African American. Um, that's 60.95% above what would be expected if it tracked with the overall demographic information. Um, and every other, um, the only other uh, one that's positive where, uh, uh, where people are released at a higher rate than in the workforce is the uh, two or more. Um, racial designation. So I think that was sort of what we're talking about here. And then also, since September 2016, 1,353 uh, 1, people have been hired by AHS, and it's at a, the hiring is at a very consistent demographic with the overall demographic. So um, it's basically a couple percent here or there above or below. Um, Again, however, 267 people have been, uh, who've been hired have also had a termination date just in the next column on the spreadsheet that I was provided. And again, we see African Americans getting terminated above the expected rate. Um, they account for uh, um, the 24% above what would be expected. Once again, the 99 um, of the 267 terminations were uh, African-American when 75 should have been what we would have seen. So we're, once again, we're, we're above. And once again, 6.26 um, above for two or more races, and that's the only additional one. Um, and finally, this is the most interesting part, is, is 
When we look at the resignations, people who willfully decide to leave the organization, African-Americans and people of two races are the only ones that are less. So once an African-American or a person of two races can get a good job or they're just, they're less willing to leave. They value, they seem to value the job more. So the only, the main, so 11% below what we would expect of this regular resignation. So African-Americans being terminated at a higher rate, released from probation at a higher rate, and when they actually have the choice, are resigning at a lower rate. They seem to value the work more, and I think that AHS should value them at the same way that they value this employment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for um, sharing information and, and coming to the meeting. Thank you. Thank you. And now we will talk about the dashboard. Yeah. So thank you, Trustee Jensen. So the format is the same as, as it had been for some time now, so I'm going to keep that and we will get to the probation release there in a little while. Um, as you can see, I'll go left to right with the time to fill. The time to fill has increased significantly, and I'm going to address that in a little while. I think we've seen significant swings in the type of position that we, that we have filled, and so a number of roles, uh, both physician, providers, and director level positions that were open for a significant period of time um, were filled. And they had been open for you know anything upwards of 60 days, and that, that pulled our data in the wrong direction from overall time to fill. Uh, time to start was influenced by obviously the time to fill data, but also we had a um, an NEO date pushed out because of the holiday period. So that added a week to time to fill to for or time to start for everyone in that in that period. So that added to that data, and I'll, again I'll speak about that in a little while. When we look at the applicant pools, the new hires, and the current employees uh, from within Alameda County, though that data is held fast. We don't see a significant shift there. We are working locally to hire as much locally as we can, but we haven't seen a significant shift for the population from outside of the county moving in. So we see that holding steady, uh, and to some degree, that's what we would expect. We're not deliberately uh, giving any sort of point system for people who live within the county at this point in time. You know, we have a lot of people who've been, quite frankly, priced out of living close to Oakland and the surrounding area, and they have moved out to areas, Contra Costa County and others, and are now traveling in. And so it's a, we want to hire from the local community as much as we can. We also know that people have moved out, and then we don't want to cause them not to be employed simply because they've been priced out of a more expensive urban area like Oakland or, the, or Alameda or some of the other locations that we have. Um, the next uh, areas are workers' compensation. And so the previous quarter with last days was 434. It's, really, it's a um, statistical anomaly. We moved to a new vendor, 1571 actually is the real number of lost days. It includes the number from the previous vendor moved over. Um, we're establishing a benchmark for that. I'm sorry, can you? So, 434 oh, days was yeah. a transition to a new vendor. Yeah, and so the only data in that were the numbers that were 
reported to us by that vendor. Now they're aggregated and, and include numbers shifted over from the previous work, workers' comp vendor. And so we think 1571, no, we think we know that to be an accurate number. We're working with the vendor to look at like-sized institutions in healthcare to see what a reasonable number of lost days actually is for the number of employees the type of services we provide, so we've got an appropriate benchmark. Um, the number of uh, workers' comp injuries trended up a little bit. We're looking into the reasons for that. Um, we, there's nothing that has significantly changed that we can see. Uh, that there's not a disproportionate number of increases in slip and falls or lifting injuries that we can see that's really causing this change. So it's something we'll continue to investigate and report out on what we identify as the causal factors there. Next is uh, number of separate. Yeah. Tony, can you can you explain how the benchmark is established for um, for lost days? I, I see that you that our dashboard's going to establish a new benchmark. Yeah. So we're working with the the new vendor we have uh, the workers comp. Uh, provider, they're looking at like institutions that provide similar services. They have not come back to us with data that we, we feel is reflective of that at this point in time. They're looking for us. When they give us some uh, alternatives, we'll present those to you so that you're comfortable that they're appropriate benchmarks, and then we'll compare the number of lost days to make sure that you're comfortable that it's an appropriate benchmark, and that's what we'll measure against. Great. And we have something for the number of injuries. We shouldn't be trending above 50 injuries uh, per month, as I said. We're investigating that right now. We think it's not clear what the causal factor is, but when we find out, we'll report out on that in the next meeting, what we discovered, how that and how that's been addressed. Um, in terms of uh, annualized turnover, it trended down in this quarter from the last. Uh, I'm a little concerned that that's going to vary. So by doing it quarterly, that smooths out some of the variation month to month. As I look forward, we've, the next month that we'll report individually is trended up, which you'll see on the True North metric dashboard. But as a quarter, it trended down to below 11% overall. Uh, annualized first year turnover trended down a little bit, a couple of percent, and annualized second year turnover trended up uh, from 15% to 22. Overall, it's good, but those two areas I think I've raised with you before are concerning to me. The, the longer-term employees remain with the organization. In many regards, we're investing on the front end and doing the same work over and over again, and that's, that has problems for the culture of the organization, for managers getting the work done, uh, and frankly, paying people in their HR department simply to recruit the same position over and over again. So this is a significant area of concern for us. And, and Tony, maybe this is in another document. Do you have uh, the most common reason people voluntarily leave? Um, I do. I don't have it here, but I can provide that to you. There are a number of reasons. Some are relocation. When we look at nurses, it's often the time and available shift. And so what I would tell you is the published data will tell you on nursing specifically. Nurses leave roles because they didn't feel professionally rewarded or recognized. They typically take their next role based on shift, location, and pay. That pattern tends to repeat. And so then people become dissatisfied in the work and they look for another role that is in a better location with often a day shift if that's what they need and with a, a, a higher level of pay if possible. And so there's a, 
something of a paradox as to why they take a job versus why they leave it. They're very different reasons, uh, but they've held pretty fast in healthcare, particularly nursing, for a long time now. Um, and some of it we can address. The pay is the pay, as you know, we negotiate that. The shifts are what is available based on the staffing pattern, but that is really what drives most frontline turnover. There are other reasons, but they're predominantly the reason. And relocation plays a pretty big role in the Bay Area. And do we have that data based on exit interviews from an independent source? Yes. Okay. We use a third-party uh, exit interview company okay. um, called the Work Institute. They're blind um, <coughs> surveys that go out to every employee, regardless of the reason they leave, uh, whether it's um, voluntary or otherwise, but also that we can uh, discern whether or not there were voluntary or not terminations, and what the, the primary reason and all the reasons they chose to leave. Yeah, so I'd, be great I'd, to yeah, I'll give you, I think we talked last time, we gave some data, but I also uh, have sort of dragged my feet and told you I was dragging my feet, that we wanted the data set to be something that, you know, made sense. In some areas, if it's two people, that, that's not useful data, it's two individuals. We have, I think, a data set now that could really tell us more of a story and would be useful for me to report on in the next meeting. Okay, so let's make sure that the next meeting, when we do this, we yeah. look at a compilation of why people leave yeah. um, based on the uh, data that you have. And it would be helpful if that particular, it, it would be helpful if that entity that does that independent research, if they could represent it to us. If they're doing that for us, can they come to our meeting? Uh, that I don't know. I can certainly ask them. Yeah, uh, but we would be great. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and then next is nursing specific. As I mentioned, it's tr nursing trended down as did the rest of turnover over, over the three month period. Um, the first year turnover also trended down, but second year turnover peaked. And again, the same pattern for overall, uh, overall turnover uh, is repeating. And so again, this is a concern to us because we're heavily investing in recruiting with built a fairly robust recruitment team. We've seen some variability month to month, but overall the trends in recruitment time have gone down, and yet we're seeing the same pattern. And so, Lisa uh, Marie is going to talk in a little while around the training around diversity and inclusion, um, because that sits under her within talent management. We're also going to do some work around selection and interviewing for managers as part of that and beyond that, because we're seeing that there's a fit issue. People are voluntarily leaving or otherwise in that second year. And that's just a, it's just a, from a business perspective, it's a problem. And from a human perspective, it's a problem for us. And we need to get a better understanding of what's really driving it. Obviously, like all of this, this is aggregate data, and each individual story is different. And so when I talk more about the probation releases, a lot of it's aggregate data. It doesn't reflect on the individual story, but each case itself is a, for a different reason, and I think we've got to get to the trend or underlying causes that repeat significantly, and so that way we can address them across institutions. Um, so in the hour of time to start, these are really the positions that dragged our data up in the wrong direction. We filled all of these, which are good things. Uh, Kaizen Promotion Office, which is the lean office. Director of Revenue Integrity, which was a crucial role for us. Psychologists, pharmacists, medical director in pain management, uh, a hematology oncologist, and a director of patient safety. But because they've been open for longer than we would typically see, because they're difficult to fill positions, they dragged our data up. 
I don't think that we expect to see this repeat as a pattern. What I am worried about in the data is, as we have tightened our belts institutionally, then the number of positions we fill will go down, and then the data will start to move with individual roles. You know, when you have three, four hundred positions open, one job of a physician takes six months, it's not going to drag the rest of the data in one direction because you have less of those you fill within 30 days. Now we're going to have less positions, and so individual uh, positions that are open a long time are going to start to drag the data. So that's our responsibility to look at that and make sure we get all of the positions filled in a timely fashion. But it's, it's going to be more impacted just dealing with smaller numbers I think we're going to have going forward. Are these the positions that are open that we just No, these are positions that we filled recently in this quarter that, dragged, that took the oh. data upwards because they were open for a long time. The Kazan promotion officer or office, the director, I think in particular, was open for a significant period of time. The hematology oncologist actually wasn't open for an enormous amount of time for that level of specialty, but some of the revenue integrity was and a couple of the others were open for a long period of time and that, that impacted our data. Um, in terms of, I apologize for the time. What was the last bullet on there? The, the um, no, any, uh, so the holiday period, uh, oh, we, we moved previously to have any every week, which allowed us to speed up the time to start. We missed, and so that pushed out everyone's date for a week, and then that impacts the data on how long it took to start, because that probably impacted 30 to 35 people's start dates, and that pushed the data in the direction. In the direction. So we have a dashboard. That is why you have a dashboard and you know in the aggregate it will ideally wash out and we'll hit target, but we're gonna have months where we fluctuate. Uh, workplace injury improvement, so um, we have been required to put in place a workforce violence prevention program as every healthcare provider in California it has, and that's part of the injury and illness prevention plan. And so we have a training program that will be going out throughout the organization. Uh, it's called T, uh, there are two parts to it. One is going to be an online training uh, provided by HSS. It's recommended by the California Hospital Association, uh, and it's intended for people to get an understanding of incidents where violence may be begin uh, to occur or a situation escalates. Uh, and so it will give all our employees some level of understanding of how to prevent or uh, not have those situations progress. I'm using that language as opposed to de-escalate because there is a de-escalation thing that we have used historically called CPI. Uh, and this is in fact intended to prevent those situations escalating in the first place. To stop uh, a situation where you see an individual perhaps emotional, uh, they've come into an ED or some other part of the organization or even an inpatient area where they've got a very sick relative, there could be a, a lot of tension around that issue. How do we identify that early? How do we sort of head it off before it becomes a more serious situation? And hopefully prevent those things from happening and moving into, uh, you know, for us, what is it called gray, a combative patient. The, the idea is less of those occur through this training. That's going to be online and will be required by all employees. It will be required by all temporary employees and all nurse travelers. It will also be required by all members of the medical staff. Uh, and that training is available now and people are going through it. Um, secondarily, there will be a team-based training uh, team is the acronym for the training itself that will be for frontline staff in those areas where we think there's a, a, a higher risk of these occurring. Those typically are the ED, 
psychiatric emergency room and other areas where we think there's a likelihood of these situations uh, coming on a more frequent basis. And so there will be face-to-face -face training in those areas. Those areas, particularly now, use CPI, the de-escalation training. Again, it will be replaced by this, which is an attempt to stop the situations escalating in the first place. We think and hope that this will reduce the number of violent or potentially violent situations and also uh, just get, in the end, better service to our patients. They come in an emotional state. Their family members can be in an emotional state, depending upon how we react to that can either cause a situation to escalate or it can cause it to de-escalate and for us to be able to help that person just move through this particular moment. That's really the goal of this. Um, working in partnership with a VP of facilities, he's identifying what are areas where this training will be delivered. It will be delivered in the ED, it will be delivered in PES, then we'll need to identify everywhere else in the organization that needs to be delivered where we think there's a high risk. Um, we think this is important. It is required um, under law, and so it's in place in all healthcare facilities. I have spoken to a lot of the local facilities to see what they were doing. Some are just simply doing an online training. A few are doing as, uh, as much as we are. I have not talked to any that are doing a more substantial role out than we're doing right now, so I think we're right in line with the hospital community locally in Northern California. Um, Atlas Lifter continues to be our, sorry, Trustee Johnson. I, I, um, it just seems like we would have a head start because we do, we do wear a trauma center and we do um, help employees hopefully to, to address trauma. So hopefully we do have a head start over other um, non-trauma providers. Hopefully mm -hmm. so. Um, we have a safe patient handling program, we use Atlas Lift Tech. There will be a new safe patient handling policy being delivered out of nursing. Is that new Atlas Lift Tech? Uh, we've been using it for some time. We've used it for about 18 months now, I think. Uh, they had run training out of our facilities. They've done particularly good work at Fairmont where we had some issues, you may recall, that we spoke about a number of meetings about a particular patient to train those people to have the appropriate lift in place uh, to head off that individual patient's per personal concerns for his safety, but were then leading to combative situations with our employees who were really attempting to help them. And so th they've helped in that regard, and hopefully throughout with the, other, the rest of the organization, we're reducing injuries by, by having this program in place. Um, and we've done a... A question. Yes. Um, I'm still stuck on the injury uh, prevention. Yeah. Um, what are we doing to address an active shooter situation? So we have tabletop exercises uh, and active shooter exercises that run out of Luis's shop and by Sandra Williams, who's our safety officer. Uh -huh. And so we run tabletop exercises on active shooter and we work with the sheriff's office on those. Okay. And how recent have we done those? I, offhand, I don't know. I have to verify with, with Sandra Williams. I don't know. I know we've had conversations about this recently. Yeah. Uh, um, because of some of the work that's happened, the shifts that we're making in that area, and the approach, there's something about the approach that we're actually involved in, so I don't recall when the last one was, but we can think Well, I bring that up because um, I think we've asked this question a couple of times in the last two years or so. I feel, I feel like we've answered them in the last last year. I just don't know what I'm talking about. I, th I think um, Luis may have answered it in a different form than the HR community, so I'll, I'll verify yeah. it when it was most recently done. Okay. 
And, and let's make sure that that's included in the injury and illness prevention plan. Okay. It feels like we need to. So it's a little bit, this would be. I know this is different. Yeah. I do. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Workplace yeah. violence is, is more of a, an effort to look broadly around. I agree. You know, multiple sources of workplace mm -hmm. violence. But after shooting, is a part of the emergency planning preparedness uh, part. Okay. So it's, a, it's, a, it's in the same shop and definitely have overlapping sort of. Uh, um, dynamics, uh, uh, but but this one is given by a new state law uh, that went into states in January and was effective, I think, in the beginning of April. Yes. Understood. Yeah, that would be helpful. Thank you. Okay. Okay. And then, obviously, ongoing ergonomic work that we do to ensure that people's workplace, workplace is safe for them to work in and we reduce the number of injuries. Um, so, um, probation release data. Um, as I mentioned earlier, each case is a case by itself, uh, particularly to the individual involved. Some of this data is aggregate in nature, so I want to caveat everything with that, not because I think it changes it, but I'm looking at the data across the institution. When we deal with an individual termination, it's dealt with on its own merits at the time, uh, but this data is everything, and so not just the uh, members that you heard tonight of SEIU tend to run, but of all our locations. Um, and so that is total data as opposed to individual facilities or individual unions. So the information that we run through here, are, I just gave a, you know, a context setting slide first about ethnicity and data over a three-year period. So you see that what our Mina County uh, data looks like for the same ethnicities. Uh, then the, data, the same data that was referred to earlier, uh, the highs in separations for an 18-month period, September 2016 to February 2018, that was the information request that was um, made by SEIU, and so we responded to that, so we used the same data so we could refer to you know, the same data set. Uh, we dealt with highs and terminations by race in that period, probation releases. Request for information that was That's correct, that they, they were mentioning earlier. So yeah, we used the same data. Okay. Uh, highs and probation release for these classifications. I call these out specifically because they, they were relatively large groups of employees, both hired and released. Lots, as I look through the total data, many of the, the roles that were where employees were both hired and released were individual incumbent jobs. So one person in and one person out in that period, and then likewise replaced. These are larger groups of employees who can look at the numbers of employees hired into it and the number of releases, and that gives you a better sense of a proportionality uh, that was being mentioned earlier. And so the others are such small job, um, numbers of jobs, it's difficult to get any sort of sense of a percentage, because it might be one person in of who's Caucasian, or one person African-American, and one person out. So for each of those jobs, it's 100%. For these, there are enough roles that are hired that you can start to see trends in there. So uh, the first slide is, as I mentioned, the, the context setting. The purple uh, columns are near county. Um, the other data relates to October 1st, 2016, and March 27, or May 15, October 16, and March 17, for shifts in trends um, and of our employees against the county at large. And you'll see that, I mean, one of the largest things that jumps out is uh, underrepresentation of Hispanic Latino. And for our population, when you look at the entirety of the county, and actually overrepresentation of African Americans. Now the reality for us is that our facility, our largest facility in the clinics, reside in Oakland. 
which has a higher percentage of African-American citizens than if you look at the county at large, which then sort of has a larger number of Caucasians further away from our facilities. And so we don't have data specific to Oakland as a city or our other hiring locations. We're looking at the whole county data. So I don't want it to mislead anyone. I think you will know that the data is representative of the county. We also know where our locations are, but this gives you some sort of context of how our employee population looks in relation to the rest of the county. Uh, this is the number of new hires uh, in that period, so 1,353 new hires. It is again reflective of our total employee base. There's very little differential, there's very little differential between the employees we hired and what we actually looked like before we hired these people. And so it tracks pretty closely as the uh, gentleman mentioned earlier. And when you look at separations in totality, there is almost no difference. And so again, aggregate data tells a particular story. We've had about a, we've had a disproportionate underrepresentation of Hispanics in that period. The same representation of Caucasians, the um, same representation of African Americans. When you just look at total highs and separations, and so they ha we haven't seen a substantial shift in that. Is this? All separations? Oh, or yes. Okay. Deliberately included, and I'll move into the probation releases in a minute. Okay. I just, again, I wanted to give you context as we start then to drill into it. If you were to simply look at it from the 50,000 foot level, you would say nothing changed in that period. We've got about the same number of Caucasian, African American, Hispanic employees as we had five years ago. It's, it, it moved a percentage point here and there, but nothing that you would say stood out dramatically. When you then look at the probation releases, you see that in that period of time of the 94, 44% of them were in fact African American. Uh, I think it's a valid point and a point of concern for us to look into and understand what that is. Uh, again, some of the jobs are individuals and some of them are larger, and I'll talk a little bit more about the, the larger number of jobs in a moment. Clinical nurse ones and twos. So this is a group where we have a reasonable number of hires and, and probation releases in that period, so we could look at the number. And again, you see an unusually large number of Caucasian employees hired in this classification that period when you look at the rest of the organization, when you look at all classifications combined. Uh, and again, a relatively high number uh, of African-American and Asian employees hired into this. When you look at Amelia County at, at large, lower numbers in Hispanic and two or more races. Again, not reflective of the, of the entire county. Chairman Team to the ER, Mother One Trauma, ETA, six minutes. Chairman Team to the ER, Mother One Trauma, ETA, six minutes. But again, as you see, they're slightly higher on white, Caucasian, uh, not Caucasian, not Hispanic, uh, in terms of hiring. Um, and then the, the percentage of releases was about 30. African Americans were hired at a lower rate, 27, and released at a slightly higher rate, or at a higher rate, rather, 38%. Trustee DeVos, question? Trustee DeVos? Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I think it's notable also that uh, the two war races, I mean, it's not just the total percentage of all of the releases that's yeah. struggling, it's the likelihood that you'll be released if you're African-American or a mixed race. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
5 out of 53 versus 4 out of 65, 3 out of 14, but it's really skewed. Yes. It's really skewed. Mm -hmm. But what's your age? Sorry, it's so, so, a yes. So I trusted the risk of the city, you said 5 out of 50. Uh, five out of 53 for African-Americans released, so five out of the 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 Right, so 10% chance. I'm not looking at the total. That's not yeah. a chance. That's, that's a total percent. Yeah. That's right. I'm looking at the ratio. And the percentages are tough to look at when you look at the release uh, side as well, because the, the total number, particularly in this particular category, is, 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 a, is a small smaller number. Right. Right. Digits, that's right. So uh, 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 one person takes the number out by that so you, you chose to break it down even further by these subcategories yes. of employee groups, food service workers, right. clinical nurse, because they, when I looked at the total hires and probation rules, they were the only substantial, um, by substantial I mean where we had a large number of employees hired. We had a large number of jobs that are single incumbent, and so they were difficult to do any sort of analysis that is not, you know, a Caucasian person in a Caucasian person out of African American person, and so it's 100% hired in the least. Okay. So um, in the food service work area, the vast number, so 67% of the people hired were African American, and 100% of the probation releases were seven people. So the numbers there, to Delvecchio's point, so this tells a mixed story. The N is small, but the impact is large. So as a percentage, it's very high, it's 100%, so all of it, all the probation releases, but the N is seven people released out of 41. Um, in that particular classification, that's not an unusual amount. What you wouldn't expect to see is this disproportionality, particularly around an individual race. Trustee Johnson. Um, well, I guess my, my, my question would be, it, 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 would all these people be, especially under the at food service workers or um, the eligibility clerk, would, the, would all the new hires be under the same manager? One or two? So uh, food service workers would be spread across all the campuses, and so that makes, again, this is aggregate data from all the locations. Um, we have hiring, there are two locations that hire in the cafeteria, mm -hmm. and then there's the, the kitchen for the, with the patients. Then we have Fairmont, uh, we have a kitchen over at Almeida, folks over in South Shore as well, uh, Fairmont Hospital, and also San Leandro. So there's, mixed, there's a, a variability in terms of who the individual managers are. So these, you, you are confident that the seven of the 31 new hires will spread out across the the whole system. I'd have to look into the data at a level below. Well, if, if, if not, if we find something, we'll be, I would appreciate if we bring that. Yeah. If that's not the case. Okay. So, Tony, these, these are the numbers involved here in total probationary releases, mm -hmm. the numbers for each group here are. 
shall I call them, focus group size. <laughs> you might do two focus groups out of the African American and two focus groups out of the white, one focus group out of the Latino. I, I, this is such a troubling finding that it, it feels like it's doable to do a focus group among these folks. Maybe not you particularly, I understand. Well, I know that about race, but the question becomes always with a terminated employee. So I can take these, the probation releases, there are 94 of them in total of 18 months. Yeah. To take a group of terminated employees and think about what response you will get that is different than the perspective they have that I shouldn't have been terminated. Right, so everyone that chooses to leave made that choice. Uh, everyone that's terminated didn't make that choice themselves. Somebody else made it for them. And so you could, do a, you could do a focus group with any group of individuals. You have to know to some degree that if I take a, a group of people who, whose work has been removed from them by someone else, you're going to get some sort of response that, that may not be reflecting what actually happened. I understand. And this is such a difficult bit of information. We all agree on that. Mm -hmm. I, I would just have courage to perhaps ask a different person, a different uh, independent vendor, to look at this because we should really understand how this happens. And I, and, and I know that we're all going to be you know, concerned about having a really difficult moment of conversation that's ugly. But but I, I'm, I'm feeling the need to, just to say out loud, if this was happening in any number of organizations that I've been in, there would be some kind of effort to really ask those questions. And, and it has to be off campus, it has to be away from here, whatever, but this is troubling and, and, and it feels like we should be willing to ask deeply what's going on. And I, I appreciate that, and I think that that's why this information is really, really, really effective and helpful, and I, I agree with um, with your point that we do need to dig deeper um, trusting, with trusting in this point. What I um, maybe uh, differ a little bit, I, I, I would wonder or, or like to dig a little deeper into why the um, the releases, these are all probationary releases, food service? Correct. Right. Why does it differ among the lines of service? What's the difference in food service versus eligibility court? Why? And that's why I asked the question about management. So that's not easy to answer either. I don't know. Right. I'm not sure I understand that. Well, uh, the eligibility court um, and the, the nurse, um, Clinical nurse twos are not as um, stark, perhaps, or as, as apparent as the um, food service workers. So that just, it, and, and to your point, um, Trustee Hernandez, if there is a focus group or if there's any kind of gathering of, um, of released employees, I would, I would want to be clear with and ensure that all of those, all of those different, all of the different lines were represented. And, and Derek here? Well, I, 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 I think another bit of data that you should have that wouldn't require the focus group is 
reason for release. Yeah. Yeah, it's, they're probationary in nature, and so they're going to vary. That's what we code them as because they're released before the, they're subject to the collective bargaining agreement and discipline. So the way that they're all coded are they were released in the probationary period as opposed to specific discipline, and there are reasons for that. Right. Right, but there has to be, is it just, can someone just call you and say, I'm going to release this person that, uh, before the year is up, and you, and you just say, sure, no problem. I mean, of course there has to be some rationale for release, I would hope. Or is it up to completely discretionary for the manager? No, it's not discretionary for the manager. One is, first is six months, not a year. Okay. Um, secondarily, yes, oh, the Yes. Oh. Yes, the reasons will vary. Um, they are coded as a probation release because they're not subject to any sort of disciplinary right. process that is grievable. Mm -hmm. So they're all coded in the same fashion as opposed to specifically for an individual reason. They do not terminate them by themselves. They meet with their violations. There's an understanding of what's going on with the individual and a determination is made whether or not that person can be successful in the role going forward or whether a, a determination should be made that this person's not going to be successful, they've received feedback coaching in an attempt to get them to be where they need to be. You're always then faced with the decision whether a probation period six weeks, six months, or a year, what are we going to do before this person falls under the formal grievance procedures of the contract? And the manager will make that in, in concert with labor relations an assessment about whether they think they can actually get them to be successful in the role. Um, before that decision to, to let them go occurs. So it's not arbitrary. Um, you know, they go through the assessment. I don't think we're suggesting it's arbitrary. It's just no, no, not at all. I, 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 I'm sure that's not, and I know that it costs, it, it's a, we, we don't want to release anyone because it, it, it costs organizations. Right. So, right. Um, but I just wonder if there is someone to correlate the, that, the reasons for releases. Uh, no, thank you. I, I appreciate the, the, the dialogue. I, I wanted to offer a, a few thoughts. Uh, but first, I, I wanted to say, you know, I think it's, it's this is a very important conversation to be having to to first, I think, uh, get into the issue. Uh, so I think that's important. And I think uh, as a transparent organization, being able to pull this information forward to share it and to say, you know, do we truly have an issue here, whether it's on the employment side or on the probationary release side or on the total release side, um, um, is, is, is one. And, and breaking it down by diversity, I think, is, is important. And I applaud everybody on both sides of this uh, matter for, for the courage to come forward and, and um, bring attention to the matter. That stated, I do. I'm, 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 I think there's some important things to say here. So, so one with the with the number of releases, uh, particularly like in, in food services, for example, where I go to a very large area. That's the second. I think there's a there's there's a couple of stories here. So one, the representation of African Americans in the employee group is is. Uh, higher than the rest of the, the workforce in this area. Uh, it's higher than the county averages in this area. And so uh, I think that's an area one might say, if you're, if you're thinking that that's a good thing, that we would celebrate that. Conversely, then to say that you know, the 
the aggregate number or the empirical number of seven out of the 41, although that seven represents 100 percent of the uh, uh, pre-probationary releases, and you know, it's not. You know, if you wanted to look at a world where everything was always equal, then you say, well, there's something wrong there. You could also see it on the other side, though, that if, if, if there's 67 percent uh, uh, hiring, that there's something wrong there. If you want to look at it that way, so I think it's a, of course it's a matter of perspective. Meaning that if you if you said something was wrong, like why is it that? Uh, in a county with a significant number of Hispanic and Latinos, you only have 3% being hired into these roles. Is there an issue there? Are they not being uh, um, uh, properly considered or thoroughly considered or given the same opportunity to be hired in these roles? I, I think it's always a, it's a complicated co conversation to have. It's an important conversation to have uh, and to continue to have if we're really committed to this. And I have no doubt that this board and this uh, leadership in this organization is committed to this. Uh, I can tell you the interview that I have, the conversation about diversity and inclusion comes up because uh, we want to understand what, what people, how people feel about this, what experience they've had about it, and how they'll be committed to this and the work that they'll need for this organization. So, so I'll just say that you know, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about an, a, a, a slice of a piece. Remember, we're talking about probationary releases, which represent, at least here, roughly 10% of the total releases for the or separations for the organization, uh, which means that in that six months, yes, there's something happening here. But even if it is like one of the comments uh, I was just made, we don't, and I think it is, a, in fact, the case, nobody wants to invest in getting, securing an employee for a role and for that employee to take on a role to then have it go awry within six months. But the reality is things happen, and there is sometimes anything more fit. So we do get to a point where that does not happen or happens considerably less. Uh, but to the extent that it needs to happen, so that you don't have an issue down the road, uh, then, then there are going to be times when that does in fact need to occur. Uh, um, and, and again, we want to reduce that, and we certainly don't want to be disproportionate in it, but we do want to dig into this further. I thought the question you raised was an excellent question that, you know, we're looking at uh, parts of our organization, in many cases, not all, that are 24-7, so you've got different leadership, you got it across different sites, and when you load it up, while the numbers are small, you know, that might not actually suggest that there is an issue of across the board, but if you see that there is you know, one manager or one director uh, that seems to be disproportionately responsible for some sort of uh, disparity here, then that is an area where we should be very transparent saying something something doesn't quite seem right here. Uh, but I, I would caution us to even from this uh, um, slice of the information to draw too quickly a conclusion about uh, what's happening here and, and, and uh, advance an area that we have a, a systemic problem here. Uh, and I, I, I don't um, think, I, I, at least I'm not like, seeing a systemic problem, but I do think that we have a dashboard for a reason. It is giving us a sense and a, and a picture of what's going on in the organization. We, we, um, we need to ensure that there's no bias, that, that, that probationary employees, that, that we're using resources wisely, that we employees are hired, that they're giving training and resources to be effective. And, and so um, I think in terms of follow-up, I know we, we want to hear more from this week, but um, in terms of follow-up, um, you know, I would like for you to bring this back. And, and, um, and I think uh, the, the other committee members do as well. Is there some specific um, 
I'm not sure either about actually polling anyone. I'm not sure that, that these are people who have been released and if, they're, if there's still any grievance or issues going on, then that would not be appropriate to, to have any discussions. But um, tell me, what would you suggest, or oh, Joe? Well, I just, um, yeah, I guess uh, to the point raised by, by the representatives from SAIU, like, is there a, some benchmark to this to this process? I understand they said that they filed a grievance on February 23rd, but you hadn't met on it yet. Yeah. No. Uh, and I'm not going to speak to that right off the bat, but I want to make sure that there are, that there's a dialogue with, with labor, um, you know, that's that's ongoing. I think it's built, I mean, I'm sure you have built-in management labor. Uh, yeah. Do you have system-wide, uh, at each location, we have triage sessions to deal with interactions with management and labor. But they're, they're dramatically different in that we have 19 separate contracts. So we don't have a single union covering all our employees. So we do have meetings that typically by location, by unit, as opposed to across the system, because we're trying to deal with the issues on a, on a unit basis. My suggestion would be if you could look at the, what you've brought us and what we've been discussing and, and, and give us any information if this is unit specific, if we can yeah. you know, yeah. and, and discuss that. Would that be appropriate can we uh, also offer that uh, the deeper analysis you're asking for, and we uh, we could also come back with a set of recommendations yeah. for those next steps in terms of uh, um, uh, what additional activities we can take to. I just want those next steps with those recommendations. We'll engage with the CIU. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I just. I, I, our, our meetings aren't exciting. You know, <laughs> this is not Oakland City Council. So for a bunch of people to show up and raise these issues two meetings in a row, and then just find data that actually supports the concern, that that's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so I just, I really feel like I want to see that there's some real engagement on it. Um, I, because at the same time, as you said, we invest in people, and I worry that what's, like, are they getting performance evaluations at, at, at 30 days, at 60 days, at 90 days? Do they know what's coming? You know, I, I just, that's, that's what I want to know, because, Getting a new job is tough, and then to not to lose it after six months, after the investment we've made in them, that that's that's it, it really does hurt the organization and the individual. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just I'm I'm not doing a very good job of seeing what I what, what I think we should ask for, but I know I know that we have to bring this to the full board. Um, but I, I, yeah. Well, if, if, if we do dig a little deeper, as Deborah Kiel and, and Tamara said, and we can, um, if there is, you know, if we can talk about a pattern or the, the units or the, the contracts that, mm -hmm. that these are um, related to, yeah. that the separate, if we can talk about separation, not perhaps specifically, but the entries of the different contracts that would. Um, no. we'll and I, I do like the idea of having a recommendation. I think that the, the board should, um, you know, this is why we have an HR committee. We give you the tools to do your job, but also ensure that um, the employees are needs are met, training, etc. And now, um, if we can move on, uh, uh, I, I just want to sort of give a little bit of a different perspective when I heard said that we don't have a systemic issue. Um, 
the data on slide 32, page 32, showing Alameda County ethnic diversity in comparison with who we hire, does have some systematic data indicators that, that I would say we do need to be thoughtful of. Um, we are woefully underrepresented when it comes to hiring Latinos, mm -hmm. given the demographics of our region. Um, and I, I think this is going to require a careful uh, collaboration and partnership with um, Hispanic-serving institutions, uh, our community colleges, uh, local Latino organizations that are going to uh, perhaps help us identify a pipeline. Um, so I want to be very careful that we don't dismiss that. And um, I do want to hear some recommendations. When I look at just the new hires, um, there are some patterns there uh, that we should be reflecting on. And, and I, again, I don't want to dismiss that. I, just I appreciate that. Yeah, I, so so want to I want to clarify my point. I'm not saying that there aren't any systemic issues. I'm saying that I don't know that we have, the data suggests that if you, if you want to look at an exact correlation across any organization, so, so if you took just what you just said, uh, if, 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 is it a right expectation that if the community's representation is 33% Latino, for example, that our workforce should absolutely it should exactly be 33% Latino? I mean, it's, it's, there's a premise of, a, 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 of an assumption that we have to agree to uh, to then say, say from there that any deviation from that represents an issue. And, and the other point is I wasn't suggesting that there, that, that there isn't a systemic issue about that piece of it. I was saying I wanted to be careful that that wasn't an assumption that because there are areas of organization where the number of African Americans who are released from probation are disproportionately higher than other parts of the organization or higher in that uh, part from, from uh, the community, that that was suggestive of a systemic issue. Because it's, a, it's just so multivariate in such a complex organization that to reach that conclusion from uh, you know, two slices of a slide and some anecdotal examples, I think, is a just a tad bit hasty. Okay, just and, and we all know, if you look at the data about hospital environments, the more similar your staff is to the patients you serve, the more comfortable patients are coming, the more likely they feel they're being heard, yes. the more likely the outcomes are what they um, should be. Right? Yes. So, so I think we always should be mindful that if we're serving a large number of any demographic group, um, we should have that demographic group represented in our staff. But, but and, and we do. It's a point of two, two verdicts in a row. So if we look at them, we say to every, yeah, to the profile of every classification in our organization match the community. So that it should be the profile of doctors match the demographics of the community. To the profile of nurses match the demographics. To the profile of health. One could argue yes, but then it argues what does the profession look like? Then what is our ability to recruit from the community doesn't represent the workforce in that sense, but it certainly is a, a laudable and I think a reasonable goal. Uh, we have to also deal with the fact of where we start from to how do we get there. So, so there are a lot of things that are actually happening. I just I don't want to take one slice at one period of time and actually be 
over, overly general, generalizing about uh, what that suggests, but I also don't want to be dismissive of that and suggest that everything is okay, because I couldn't agree or disagree more that everything is not okay. I just don't think necessarily that this slide tells us exactly what the problem is. Sorry. And we're going to continue to discuss this and um, we'll show you the agenda in the future. And we'll put it on our agenda at our next meeting, yes? Yes. Yeah. At our next meeting. That's a quarter away. Yes. Yeah. Right. So it's a little official. Yeah. Would you like? Okay. Lisa okay. Mayer. Hi, good evening. Good evening. And it's a pleasure for me to be here tonight. Diversity. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm here to talk about diversity, inclusion, and lateral violence program. So um, to get started, one of the things that we really did is we looked at a needs analysis. And when you look at some of the different steps that we um, took, we did an initial multiple communication training request from clinical leaders and managers. And what that really means is that we would have various commu um, communications over and over. And what it would boil down to is that we really had a communication um, gap um, within the organization. Um, underlying DNI and um, lateral violence issues assessed, so strategic business unit teams are diverse with gaps in inclusion. Explain uh, what lateral violence is, please. Um, sure, it, it's uh, another term for bullying. It's peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, uh, verbal. Uh, I would say verbal violence. I mean, there are lots of modern terms for it. I mean, in effect, it's just in effect, it's bullying, hazing. Perhaps new employees into a unit. I, I have never heard that term. Before. Yeah, it's, it's it's I wouldn't say it's very new. It's relatively new. It's predominantly used in healthcare. Very often used in nursing. Okay. So peer-to-peer -peer interactions in nursing, but but elsewhere as well. And if I could just um, with that as well, is more. If you could just move quickly. I, okay. If we've all looked at most of it, so I, I appreciate the clarification. But um, okay, since so we're. Sure. So I'll move on. And the factors to consider um, organizational initiatives. Uh, we're going through a lot of different initiatives. In particular, population health is a good example where we are looking at what are we doing and what we need to change. Um, leadership process commitment. So we definitely have leaders within the organization that are committed to seeing this through. And then ongoing development efforts. And in our approach, so we are going through an implementation approach um, through the strategic business units. And maybe what I'll do is I'll skip through and go to how we're implementing this. Or yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's just so interesting that we, considering the topic we just covered mm -hmm. and the topic before of losing staff for two years, mm -hmm. um, if this lateral and and you're you're seeing this gap in inclusion. I mean, this would this would really hit home mm -hmm. on exactly yes. what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Just, right. just to seeing the light bulb go off. Yeah. The, <laughs> and so this is why we attached this to yeah, the previous yeah. presentation yeah. because there are works afoot uh, to Lisa Mooney's very about competing priorities. The organization's under a lot of stress right now. Okay. And what happens at a point in stress with employees, managers, and others 
is things come out and play out in the workplace. Mm -hmm. We're aware of it, we want to address it, and where that is driven by a lack of inclusion or what term is termed in some of our training as cultural bumps, I, you come from a different background and culture, and so you, how you deal with a certain situation is different. We want to make sure we've addressed that and people are ready for it. No, it's okay. One bullet I wanted to just focus on on the approach is to, to develop team leaders um, then prior to meeting with corresponding frontline employees and I really think we need to see our employees um, as a role model in this before we start getting our employees involved. Our leaders are really the first that need to go through this training. So I'll skip through that. Um, one other thing, I want to bring this book as an example, but we had a team that went through, um, there was 10 um, individuals from various HR um, areas that um, attended this training, which is training um, of trainers. And uh, so they are the ones. Yeah. So this was a curriculum that they went through in order for them to roll out the train the trainer. Um, so our approach, you can see we're um, targeting several strate uh, strategic business units, excuse me, <clears throat> and you'll see that we're starting with the skilled nursing facilities and on the ambulatory, acute, and um, new hires. We're doing a phased-in approach, so for the phase one for diversity and inclusion, we're starting with our managers, as I mentioned earlier, and then we're moving on to our staff. Um, what I think is important here to recognize is that we're hoping that with the diversity and inclusion training, we may see a decrease in the lateral violence, and so we will reassess and just determine if we really need to do a phase two. And then the ongoing training that we'll um, be doing is um, with our LA, which is our Leadership Academy, which we've um, we're on our full cohort, which is very exciting. We've gotten really positive feedback on that, and we're going to also um, implement it in our new employee orientation and then our annual competencies and we currently have three modules um, already in our annual competencies and um, just to focus just to let you know which what they are it's a leadership academy excuse me just for managers or yes yes so we have three and we have the cultural diversity um, team building design harassment and um, harassment in the workplace, excuse me. So that's what's in our annual competencies currently. And just a, a clarifying question. I know that cultural awareness is a competency uh, that all of us should have. Does a manager have in their performance evaluation plan a question where they are rated on their cultural sensitivity, their level of inclusion, their level of ability to prevent lateral violence. Yeah. Okay. So th this is very common in HR uh, world and all of this that we say we want this to be the case, but we don't hold people accountable with an evaluation statement or comment or question that says they're actually doing it. So one of the things I, I just really would ask for is can we find a way to integrate this into the performance evaluation so that people are held accountable to demonstrating these behaviors? Yeah, I think I would, so I think it's a great point. Um, I think I would look at the results rather than necessarily put in the evaluation. The reason that I say that, and by results I mean what is the diverse makeup of that unit? What are the terminations? What are the issues? Mm -hmm. 
uh, when we do the eval, I think there's an endless bound of questions. Do you align with our, uh, you know, philosophy? Do you, and you end up with a document that almost becomes worthless because people are just checking boxes. It isn't that I describe the outcome we're looking for. I'd like to think of alternatives and just put in the evaluation and really look at what are the hiring practices in that unit. What is the makeup of the of the interview panel? Who's actually hired? What are the outcomes? Rather than necessarily putting in the evaluation, it's just the from an evaluation standpoint, I see lots of things added to them, which sort of dilutes the value of the evaluation itself. Because there isn't one single thing that is the most important thing in terms of the performance of a manager. And so I, I want to think about how we would do that. I get the point. I'm just not sure how to best achieve it in our environment. And I don't want to think about it and come back with them and talk with you about it because I do think the assessing people on this is important. How we do it, I think I, would, I just want to think about it a little bit if that's okay. It could be one of the recommendations that yeah. we can move on and move back. I just, I'm just looking through that binder. There's some really great stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's good stuff as long as we actually use it, right? right? And so what I didn't see in here, and that's what I'm curious about, is, is benchmarks. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, and maybe it's not in the manager's evaluation, but I imagine you're, you're going to managers for a reason. Like, this is where the concern is, and I think... It's probably where it goes. I mean, I don't get to know the managers. I'm in the C-suite. That's all we get. I mean, that's it's fine. That's what we are as a board. But, um, you know, so what, what's, the, what's the benchmark? Is it is it in the evaluation? Is it not in the evaluation? Is it, what, what, how do you hold a manager accountable there? That you're actually, not just going through the training, but actually in, uh, affecting that culture change. You know, like how, how, well, how the answer yeah, I, I think it's multifactorial. I think uh, Del Vecchio and Maria have talked about it. It's a complex problem. There are no single solutions. That's why it's not that I'm opposed to being involved. I just want to think about how you do it and make it successful. I may hire a diverse workforce in here. So let's say, proportionately, perfect world. I have the, the community stat, the community de data for African-American, Hispanic, and others, but I release it exactly the same rate. I professionally release them. Did I do a good job or a bad job? You know, I hired them, and so some of that data, I think, to Del Vecchio's point earlier is, you see a disproportionate hiring based on units that are, at John George, for example, we have one unit is predominantly African employees. We have another unit is predominantly African-American employees. People hire people like themselves. What we want is a diversity within those units and all our units, and how do we best deliver on that? It isn't that I'm saying we shouldn't evaluate people, I'm saying we should. We should hold them to account for it. I'm not sure that the evaluation itself is the best way to do that. I think we need to think about how we do it. Look at who the people are that they're actually hiring. Look at the practice through the year. So that you can look and drop into you and say, look, I'm looking at your hiring, and I think we have a problem. I don't want to wait to the year end to do an evaluation. I want to say, let's look at your, your interviewing practices right now, because I think we've got something going on here, and we can help you do this better. We can, we can get a different set of opinions in your department if we have someone from HR sitting on the interview panel and observe how we do this. And provide, so what we want to do is shift the behavior. We do want to hold people accountable, but the most important thing is that ultimately the behavior changes and we're reflecting the community at large that we hire, how we manage it, and we have a diversity of opinion in every each and every unit where possible. So, so it is a combination, and I think that is a good approach. One other thing I'll add to the potential combination 
is that uh, in some organizations, a department's level of engagement, so the press gaming score for that department, yep. is part of that manager's evaluation. Yep. And that really does get everybody's attention. Um, because if you're about results, if what you're you know, saying is what you're trying to do, yep. then that's a pretty good result to be aiming for. That is something that is very measurable and very much attributed to a specific manager. Yes. So um, I, I, I know we're going on. I just like, would like to suggest maybe a different time dedicated to our performance evaluation system. I don't know what our performance evaluation contains. Yeah, if we could have a blank one and just take a look at that for another conversation. Sure. Yeah, that, that, that's something um, I have on my list for future. And, yeah, and, and Trustee Hernandez and I just spoke about that. And Jane and I can reflect on the evaluation standards. Okay. This book, by the way, seems very good. And I would just add to um, the discussion of what was just discussed. I think that um, in terms of having this, this model and, and setting out these um, expectations, as well as all of the information and the resources and the, um, and the framing that's in this sort of a um, model, I think is that, that sets the stage and, and gives people it gives employees, especially managers, the, 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 the information that they need to make the culturally appropriate decisions, I would expect. So um, I'll talk about the timeline. We will launch on April 18th the pilot with um, care management leadership team. And then we'll move on through April 19th um, through May, um, the plan logistics, and then May through February implement um, diversity and inclusion across Alameda Health System. Is there a reason you're starting SNF? Is that So the, the, when you look at the acute care facilities, uh, while it's got the largest population, it's the hardest place to train people. Everyone that's not working has to be replaced uh, for any sort of training that you're delivering. The SNFs, they have by design built-in training time. Mm. Ambulatory has built-in downtime. When you do anything in the inpatient environment, it's just a much harder environment. You know, if you want to, we want to deal with that. How you get there is just a harder one because yes, of the employment cost. <laughs> So sustainability, the ongoing plan. So again, um, I mentioned earlier that we are implementing it through new employee orientation. Um, Leadership Academy, um, where it will reinforce the behaviors so leaders and managers continue to role model for their teams. And then, of course, we have the annual competencies, which we do through e-learning zone that supports the learning application. And then what I thought I would do is just quickly go through some of the content um, of the training. Uh, there's one. So here's a diversity will, which is um, one of the items that are behind the mic. I think the um, changing demographics is a good one to really focus on because it really shows that things are changing. And so this is really timely for us to implement. And this is where I like to show that um, how we are a complex cultural, um, um, be, excuse me, <coughs> beginnings and so beings. And so this is an opportunity for us to celebrate because we really have different opportunities here to you know celebrate around. So. 
I just want to focus on that one little slide. And that's really it. Okay. So I did want to close with one. Um, National Geographic actually has a, uh, um, I think it's this month that they came out with a special issue on diversity. And there's this one quote that I thought would be good to end with this um, presentation, but it says, what is race exactly? Science tells us there is no genetic or scientific basis for it. Instead, it's largely a made-up label used to define and separate us. Thank you for your time. Right, if, if you go to do 23 and me, if you want that, you're right. Just to follow up, it, it's a really complicated problem. I don't think we have all the We're going to make recommendations to you, and hopefully they will be appropriate to, to what your mindset is. We aren't going to solve um, people's bias in one first group. I think the, the issue that we really want to challenge is that we're all biased in a various way. Owning that bias, understanding it, and then removing it from our decision-making process, allowing us to hire more, a more diverse population, and then deal with the, the cultural differences that we face every day will allow us to better serve our patient population. I think we're shifting all kinds of people's behaviors, people from different backgrounds, different cultures, uh, different races and ethnicities within our organization, both frontline employees and managers. And then there's some entrenched behaviors that we're going to have to work our way through. I do you know, want to echo Del Vecchio's sentiment earlier that in every interview he does that I observe, it's a key question. The key question is how diverse is the candidate pool? What does it look like in terms of the demographics of the people we're interviewing? We may not be able to decide exactly who's hired every time because we're going to try and hire the best candidate, but ensuring that diverse candidate select, being committed to that and working hard at it, and then measuring ourselves against that is something that we're absolutely committed to. And we'll keep working on it until we get it right. That's awesome. And we'll always have to work on it. That's the thing. We used to talk about, um, I mean, equity is the word for, the, for, the, for right now. You know, it used to be uh, 20 years ago, it was teach tolerance, right? Uh, celebrate diversity. But I mean, it's like we will always have to work on this. And, and I think a lot of us chose to live in the Bay Area because we're so much further ahead of the rest of the country. But that still doesn't give us the out. So I mean, we're, we're never going to get it totally right. And, and there's increased attention beyond what we have today. So now we're also talking about privilege and the use of power in privilege uh, among different individuals. So it can be by education, it can be by ethnicity, it can be by any number of means. And then the next is belonging. So we've gone from looking at this as a structural issue, uh, a programmatic issue, so how do people feel when they walk the walls and walk the floors around here? Do they feel like they belong? Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe in another 10 years, there'll be another standard. But we are evolving in this discipline, and it really is a discipline. So I hope, you know, um, who is our diversity uh, and inclusion leader or manager? So it falls into Lisa oh, Marie, oh, okay. uh, and she's uh, Monique, who leads recruitment, Monique okay. Johan also. Okay. So, so I really would encourage that our team has as much opportunity to attend 
the more progressive events in the DNI discipline to really come up to speed with what are others doing. And I'm sure you're doing that, but I just want to call out yes. to in case there's any problem, let us know. Okay. We want you to go to the conference. <laughs> Thank you. And I'd just like to um, close this topic by saying, uh, uh, by, if Michelle is here, she would have already said this perhaps, but um, uh, being on the school board for eight years, about 10 years ago, this was a discussion that we had in the, in the Unified School District about diversity and inclusion, about why our students look different from our teaching staff, or why our um, ancillary staff look different from our certificated staff. And it is it is a discussion that, that is not going to ever stop, I hope. So I appreciate what everyone's doing here. And I also want to finally just say that yesterday I was here to see the SIM lab downstairs, where we are training new providers um, to serve at either here or elsewhere, and I think that's a great step to um, achieving eventually, hopefully, this, um, this, this, well, we, we never achieved it, but to get into our goal of, of serving well. And so that's the end of our reports and presentations. If there's any comments from board members. No other speaker steps, then we adjourn. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I see you tomorrow. I don't know. 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 I don't know.